Welcome back to That's Ancient History. Today I am joined by another exciting guest. I have with me my friend Jill Scott, who if you follow my YouTube channel you may have seen on a few occasions before. Um, Jill and I again went to Edinburgh University together and both studied uh, within the Classics department. Was your degree specifically in Ancient History? Yes. Yes, okay. So Jill has an Ancient History degree, so she's, she's the right person to be here. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> don't don't regret it now. <laughs> uh, but today we're actually going to be talking a little bit more about modern stories. Well, I say modern, but over the past century or so, we're going to be talking about popular fantasy and perhaps a little bit of science fiction novels and in what ways they have been influenced by mythology. So as classicists or just classics enthusiasts, we sort of find it impossible not to pick up on stories that resemble ancient myths uh, when we're reading, I think. And we're both big readers and we both love fantasy stories. And so many of those popular fantasy stories seem to parallel ancient myths and perhaps even ancient history on occasion. So I thought it would be a fun topic to explore the way that it sort of pervades modern literature. Um, works its way in, it wheedles its way into our lives um, and that how perhaps we all know some version of an ancient story or an ancient myth just through our favourite fantasy books. But what I wanted to start with was talking about one of the classic fantasy series that inspired fantasy series for years to come and that is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and other books. Yay! <laughs> and I couldn't talk about this without Jill because I have read the books and I have seen the films but my fandom is nothing compared to that of Jill. If I want to know anything about the Middle Earth or Lord of the Rings world, I go to Jill and she has all the answers. So she is the perfect person to talk a little bit more about the mythology behind Lord of the Rings. Now we're mainly going to be focusing on classical mythology, but there is, as Jill has explained to me, a lot of Norse and Celtic mythology behind the Lord of the Rings stories. But I think in a way this is also reflective of how mythologies, particularly Western mythologies, resemble each other and have their own paralleling stories and we can touch a little bit on that as we get into it. So thank you so much for joining me Jill. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit more about the mythology behind Middle-earth and J.R.R. Tolkien's world that he created. So as far as I understand from what I've read about J.R.R. Tolkien is that he originally wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and created the world that he did because he wanted to write a kind of prehistory for England. Yeah. That was his idea. He basically wrote his novels, but then, I don't know if he already had it in the back of his mind, but he has whole prehistories for the characters in these novels. They have ancestors with, I mean, you can trace the genealogies. They're in the back of all the books that you can buy. You can trace all the genealogies and they go back generations far more than I could ever know of my own family. <laughs> it's like these people genuinely lived in some... Arthurian pre yeah. land I don't know <laughs> and it, it feels that's why I like it it feels so real because you can trace that you can find out what like Aragorn's one of the main characters so you can find out what his great 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 granddad did yeah where he came from and the gods that he worshipped and that's why it's so interesting but when you look into all of that I think there is there's definitely similarities to our our own classical mm -hmm. gods and whatnot. So for Lord of the Rings even, 
Tolkien created a whole mythology and creation story. Just like we have, or not we, just as Christians have um, the Adam and Eve story and how God created the world, he had his own version of that for Middle Earth with his gods for that world. And I think that is, I mean, the Olympian gods are one of the most recognisable features of the classical world. Yeah. They're all the statues, all the temples that people know, they're all dedicated to these gods all the myths surround these gods. It's the, it's the names we know, Zeus, Poseidon, Disney uses them and everything. And that, that I think, is where you can find the easiest, most accessible way to link the classics to Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Tolkien also has a pantheon of gods that also have, are used in attributes to link to the natural world. Mm-hmm. And he uses them as a way, I suppose, for the characters to not only have a religion, but have a way of explaining the world around them. Like the Greeks would do that, like I was talking to you earlier about, if the sea starts storming, then they say it's Poseidon must be angry. Mm-hmm. And then they they dedicate or they sacrifice something to him in the hopes to calm him down. And oh, look, the sea's calm again. And we know now there's a scientific explanation for all that, how that works. But back then, they didn't. They didn't and that's their way, like with sacrifice, so now he's appeased, he's happy again. Mm-hmm. So Tolkien also has characters that are like that and um, they, they seem to match. So we have, Tolkien has Manwe and he's the Lord of the Air and he's also King of all the Valor, okay. which is the name for the, the gods of Middle-earth, is mm-hmm. the Valor. So he's the King of the Valor and he's also Lord of Air. And that is, hello, Zeus. <laughs> that is very, yeah. very similar yeah. to Zeus. It's just he's King of the Skies and, yeah. and he's also God of all the Twelve Olympians. Yeah. So you can't help but notice... If you know Zeus, you can't help but think, huh. This is Zeus. That, that's that's really similar. So that's funny, that. And also we have Ulmo, who's the lord of the waters. Poseidon. And it's funny that they're also men. And yeah. they match. Like, it's male for male, male for male. And there's Yavanna. Javana, I don't know how to pronounce it. And she's um, kind of like Gaia. Mm-hmm. She's Earth Mother. Okay. So you do. they do seem to be... We also have, have kind of a, a Hercules yeah. character called... Tulkus, Tulkus, um, and he's kind of, he's known as the brave one, and mm-hmm. he's strong, and he's a wrestler, and he's just kind of like the manpower behind things. <laughs> and they made me, when I was yeah. thinking about doing this with you, I was laughing, because <laughs> just now all I think is Hercules yeah. for him. It's <laughs> quite nice. I thought, I'm going to throw that in, Gina will appreciate that. <laughs> My faith. So yeah, they have this pantheon of gods, and we even have a, a sort of underworld. The hall, They're called the Halls of Mandos, mm-hmm. and Mandos is the lord of them, and he's depicted as quite a cold, stern mm-hmm. individual because, I suppose, of what he what he represents. So it's kind of like um, Hades. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, you were sort of saying to me, uh, that obviously the, these gods can also be compared to the Norse gods, like Odin. Yeah, Odin. Odin Again, is Allfather Zeus. is Zeus. Yeah. Or you can link them to Zeus. I think it's quite well known that he's more directly inspired by Norse and Anglo-Saxon world. But that in itself links and you can see maybe not influences but you can see comparisons yeah. between our classical one mm-hmm. and them so you can't help but so are there any specific stories from the the myths and world of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien that remind you of a favourite ancient myth I don't know if it's my favourite ancient myth of the classics that we studied but my favourite one in Tolkien is the tale of Beren and Luthien. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know these stories. It's I a really read. sweet story. And I only... Well, I mean, I, I discovered it because 
I read more and more Tolkien and I got all his kind of his books that were um, before set before Lord of the Rings and you have different versions of the tales. But it's mentioned in Lord of the Rings um, surrounding Aragorn and Arwen's love story. They're kind of meant to be the new, the new Baron and Luthien. And their tale is, uh, I think, inspired by Orpheus and Eurydice. So the story of Orpheus and Eurydice is that Orpheus is the son of Apollo, who is god of many things, but in this case, we'll go with, he's the god of music. And he gifts his son a lyre, and Orpheus is uniquely talented for mortals with this. And he falls in love with a woman named Eurydice, and they get married, and they're going about their business, I suppose. She ends up walking in a forest and she gets bitten by a snake and she dies. And Orpheus is devastated because he's lost the love of his life. So he starts putting this into music. And his music is so beautiful and so moving and so riddled with grief, I suppose, that unintentionally he moves all the hearts of all the gods, all the animals, all the trees and rocks. Everything is just focused now on Orpheus and his grief and what he's going through. And so, in in response to that, the gods assist him and to go into the underworld. To visit her. To go and visit Eurydice and try and... I don't really know what. They don't really have an expectation for it, I suppose. Just to get him to go there. So he does, and he manages to enchant Cerberus with his musical ability, and that's how he can get past the three-headed dog. And he goes, and he does, he gets to visit, and he sees... He, well, he meets Hades and Persephone, and he moves even them with his music... And so he's allowed, Hades takes such pity on him, I suppose, and has such great sympathy for this great love and for his ability that he allows Eurydice to leave the underworld on the condition that Orpheus will trust in both the bargain that Hades has made and also in Eurydice's love and devotion to him, just like his is to her. He has to trust that he can lead her out of the underworld but without looking back. He has to trust that Hades will allow it and Eurydice will be willing to follow him the entire way out of the underworld, back into the mortal world, behind him, step by step, and he can't look back to check. There's no over-the-shoulder, you're all right. <laughs> he just has, he has to believe it. And he, and he does, and they do it, and at the last minute, they're a few feet away from returning and from living the happily ever after that we would all really love. But... Uh, is, I don't know what happens, his trust fails and he he just glances to check and unfortunately she drifts off back to the underworld and... It's a sad myth. Yeah, it is a sad myth. It's really moving. It is. But it's it's very, very sad but sometimes the best myths do have I think a lot of them are really in reality. Yeah. yeah, they have a, a note of reality to them and... Yeah. You can't always... Yeah. Exactly. And this reminds you of... This reminds me of Baron Luthien, but I'm very happy to report it has a nicer ending. Okay, tell us the story. So, there's a lot of there's a lot of back story to this, and I'm not going to go into it. Mm-hmm. If you're very interested in it, be, I'm more than happy for you to all go off and read it, and you can report back to Jean. So where would you read this story? You can get it in The Silmarillion by mm-hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien, or Unfinished Tales by J.R.R. Tolkien. All um, were published uh, posthumously, mm-hmm. and they're kind of snippets of this tale, or you can get 
you get one sort of main version of it and then you'll get the newer version because he changed and rewrote it. But there is actually a great book. I haven't read it yet but because it, it's quite new out and it's J.R. Tolkien's Baron and Luthien. Oh. And it's a complete cohesive kind of step-by-step. Step. These are all the versions that he wrote how, and you can read them as how he changed them, how he adapted them and it's all in one binder. Wow. And it's just that. It yeah, I haven't okay. got it in the house but I haven't read it yet. Okay. Because I've read it before, yeah. it's not vital. So yeah, that's where you would read it if you want to and you can get all the backstory. But basically, Beren is a mortal man mm-hmm. and Luthien is an elf. So she's immortal. He sees her in an Everglade mm-hmm. dancing and he falls in love with her. And he hears her voice and she when she's singing and he call, he nicknames her Tenuviel. Luthien Tenuviel. And Tenuviel means um, nightingale oh. in Elvish. And she's quite flattered by this. But it's a typical love story. They fall in love. It's all lovely. But as she's an elf, her dad who is an elf king, Thingol, he's not happy. He basically thinks, um, you know, you, my my daughter's above you, she's an elf, you're not worthy of her. And at this time, the elves and men, world, the world of men, they don't, it's like two species and they don't cross. So he's not particularly happy about it. So he decides to set Bear in this task and it's meant to be one of these task is just it's impossible like how can he ever do it in order to try and win it's like a bride price mm-hmm. he has to win back a silmaril which is a jewel one of these three jewels that are hot property but everyone wants them the the evil lord of the time melkor he's got one in his crown and thingol asks baron to go and basically get it off him and bring it back and that's the bride price and he'll let him marry his daughter so baron goes off to do this but then he ends up it's a whole epic kind of adventure tale like the ones of old goes off to do this um unbeknownst to him luthien does follow him she's not sitting at home waiting around for this duel she goes after him baron ends up getting uh, captured and it's actually luthien who ends up going and managing to kind of defeat melker in a way and she ends up demanding that he make her sort of lady of the tower and give her all the power and she releases all the prisoners because of it. And Baron is one of them. And they fight Melkor. He does get the Silmaril out of the crown. And it's in his hand. And a wolf, Karkaroth, I think is his name, if okay. I remember, bites his hand off and so swallows the jewel and runs off. So they go on home and they tell their tale of all their adventures they've done, what happened to Baron, why he's only got one hand, blah, blah, blah. And Thingol is so moved by the stories. Like, actually, you went through a lot. You know, clearly, you've you've proved yourself. You can marry my daughter. So they do get married. Meanwhile, Karkaroth is running around mad. The jewel has, that he's ingested has caused him to go mad. And he's just running around crazy. And he's attacking people and places. And so Beren is part of a group that are going to hunt him. And it turns out Karkaroth actually comes into the area that they're all living in. And there's a big fight. And Baron dies in it. He does get the jewel back. He cuts it out of the stomach. He gets the jewel back. And in his last moments, he gives it to Luthien's dad. So he has, in the end, completed his task. But he dies, unfortunately. And so does Luthien in the way that it's hard to explain, but in the way that elves can die. Mm -hmm. She kind of fades because she's so heartbroken. Mm -hmm. She can't bear to live without him, especially after everything they've been through. And she ends up going to the halls of Mandos, which is like a version of the underworld mm-hmm. for elves. And Mandos is the lord of them. And she goes down and she basically sings, like Orpheus, she sings her grief 
-hmm. and she cries and she weeps and she just sings constantly about how upset she is that she's lost the love of her life and she's never going to get him back and she can't even see him in the afterlife there because he's mortal man he's gone to a different place and she's living out her elven version in a separate place and she can't even be with them in death Mm -hmm. and she's so devastated but Mandos hears this and he's so moved to pity by her her beautiful voice and her her grief that he allows them both to not only go back he grants barren life again and sends them back to the mortal world he doesn't only do that but he grants Luthien mortality so they can live their life together like a proper mortal couple and they can die together at the end Oh, that does... So it has a happy ending. Yeah, I I like this version better than the Greek myth. Exactly. (laughs) But it definitely has parallels, and I didn't... It has a lot of parallels, and it's interesting that the gender roles are Mm. reversed. Yes, she says So she's the Orpheus in this. Mm. She goes off, and she's the one that's singing Mm. about her grief, and she's the one that gets her man back. Yeah, and kind of saves herself along the way as well. And it's also interesting, uh, Tolkien... I think this was his one of his favourite aspects of his whole story because on his gravestone for him and his wife, they're buried together. Instead of being John and Edith, it's Baron and Luthien. Wow. Yeah, and apparently the how they met Baron and Luthien, the her dancing on an Everglade, apparently it's inspired by a, a part of their life or their romance where Edith was dancing mm-hmm. in a field. Wow. Maybe this will convince a few classics or ancient history nerds to give fantasy a go if they haven't already. Yeah. Be convinced to think, yeah, maybe fantasy is for me. And with this, with Baron and Luthien especially, tales like this that are set in Tolkien's wider world, not mm. just necessarily Middle Earth of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, that people that, you, that read him will know. Yeah. But if that's all you've read, I would highly recommend going off and pursuing the snippets of tales that you find in the kind of um bind-ups of his other work yeah usually they're, they're sometimes they're only a brief couple of pages mm-hmm. and sometimes they're longer tales or you have to read a couple of different versions to get the full story mm-hmm. but they're definitely worth it they're gold mines amazing mm-hmm. it's like doing ancient research actually it is actually talking <laughs> it's like that <laughs> trying to make it all fit together yeah and because it's so complex it's like it is like it reminds me of studying mm-hmm there's all these complex, complex intricate storylines and people and they go off and they meet each other and they have a story. Yeah. And then they separate and they meet other people and they have, and that's all in Tolkien as well. It's all it's interconnected. Really, yeah, it's really interesting. Hmm. Any any other tidbits from Middle Earth before we move on to another fantasy series? Yes. I'm enjoying listening to these. Thank you. The Island of Numenor. Okay. Is quite an interesting one. Um, that was an island that was created and it's not on Middle Earth, it's an island off of it. And it was pulled out of the sea by the Valor, which are the, the deities, mm-hmm. to give to a, for a place to, for the mortal men to reside after they'd fought a war. They fought a, they fought in a war and they, they assisted the elves and the Valor. And so the men were granted this island. It's kind of like an, an ideal island, like mm-hmm. a Garden of Eden kind of idea for these men. While they're residing there, they build up kingdoms mm-hmm. and then they also they travel off in ships to middle earth as we know it in lord of the rings and they settle there as well so they're kind of creating a, an empire mm. as it were but they're restricted to mortal only lands mm. and they can't go where elves are allowed and they mm. can't go where the valor are and over the years eventually 
things come to be and men end up getting influenced by some bad people and they start to question why aren't we allowed the same things that elves are why are they immortal why are we not why can't we go there why can't we go visiting here and there's an uprising and a revolt and as a result of this they're basically punished and the island of Numenor falls it's the world of men fall and the island disappears into the world into the world <laughs> disappears into the sea and only a few survivors go off to middle earth and settle there and that's how you get the line of men that okay. follow into lord of the rings so numenor is kind of like atlantis mm. it's very reminiscent of that this ideal kind of world place to be that no one really knows it's kind of by the time you're reading lord of the rings it's it's a very distant memory. It's not even a memory. It's now a myth, Numenor. Re- like, re- imagine those days living on Numenor. It's kind of like that. And because the island disappears, it is very like Atlantis. And the elvish word for it is Atalante. Wow. Now, that doesn't seem very subtle. No, that, no it doesn't. But Tolkien, <laughs> Tolkien apparently um, did say that it's it's pure coincidence. <laughs> But to yeah, exactly. Part of me is like I I Tolkien. Want, come on, I don't want to doubt him, but that seems a little to... bit far fetched. Yeah, it's maybe just... it was accidental. Maybe it was in the back of his head. But was it accidental? Because without realizing it, he knows these myths. Yeah, they're back there, studied and them. he's he's they're coming out whether he wants to or not. Yeah, perhaps he studied out. them in school or university. Yeah. Um, yeah, because for people that aren't familiar, um, Atlantis is again. Greek mythology was this island that we first hear of in Greek texts, although presumably the Greeks had known about it for a long time before that, but our first surviving reference to it is in um, a work by Plato where he references Atlantis as a metaphor for the hubris of uh, of men, of mankind, and hubris is a very, very difficult Greek word to define. Difficult concept. Yes, it doesn't have a direct parallel in the English language. It's it's sort of descriptive of behaviour that dishonours other men or women um, for the benefit of the the individual um, so that they can get something out of it and then they perhaps do something um, cruel or underhanded to another. Um, And it's all about self-importance and self-inflation, really. Um, so it's it's used as a metaphor for that because then Atlantis, as we've sort of heard of in the J.R.R. Tolkien version, is mm. submerged under the sea as a punishment. Yeah. Um, I, I found this absolutely fascinating, learning about Lord of the Rings. But as we've been talking about before we sat down, this is reflective of fantasy and even a little bit science fiction in general. This, yeah. this happens a lot. We notice parallels with antiquity when we're reading it and they recur and recur the same themes as big readers (laughs) um so perhaps we can touch a little bit on some other stories before we wrap up so game of thrones is another one where unlike say harry potter where it's very explicit the references to antiquity or at least it is if you're familiar with antiquity it's a little bit more subtle um and perhaps you're extrapolating your own ideas from it you you're making connections that not necessarily the author did but for me there's so much in game of thrones that reminds me of antiquity but more ancient history than mythology so the kingdom in game of thrones has always struck me as quite similar to the roman empire and in particular cersei lannister reminds me so much of agrippina the younger who was both the wife of a roman emperor and the mother of a roman emperor um so 
And I don't think this is too wacky or far off because George R. R. Martin has acknowledged in the past that the Great Wall or the Wall uh, is inspired by Hadrian's Wall. I didn't know this yeah. until we were talking about like going over our rough notes for this podcast mm-hmm. and you'd mentioned it. And I kind of had that, what? No. But yeah. Oh, but wait, yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. And it, it does works. make sense. Yeah. So supposedly uh, George R. R. Martin visited... Um, northern England and um, stood atop of Hadrian's wall and um, imagined what it would have been like for the Roman soldiers stationed there. Though the Hadrian's wall was built uh, by the the army of the Emperor Hadrian um, to sort of guard off the land that they had taken from themselves from the crazy Picts. <laughs> well I was gonna say if he if the, the wall in George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones is Hadrian's Wall, then does that mean that Scots are the are the army of the dead? Or Maybe in the eyes of the Romans. Or are we wildlings? That means we are wildlings. Perhaps the Picts are the wildlings. Hopefully. Yeah, what does that say about what, what does that say about what George R. R. Martin thinks of us? I think it's more of a reflection probably of how the Roman soldiers felt. Yeah. Um but that made me And think, that's in literature. Yeah. That made me think that that's not too spurious then for me to say that the uh, kingdom reminds me of the Roman Empire. No, because it's not. It's just all of the court intrigue. And that's probably the thing, isn't it? It's court intrigue. It is probably going to have resemblances to the previous courts. Um, and the Roman Empire very much resembles a court. Um, but Agrippina the Younger was the mother of the Emperor Nero. And she was quite famous. Now, I don't want to say any of this is necessarily true, but she was recorded in a lot of the the ancient Roman historiography, which can get a little bit gossipy, as being quite manipulative. She very much wanted to get her son into power. And her son wasn't the biological son of the previous emperor. So she was trying to manipulate the situation so that Nero would become emperor eventually, as he did. And there's also a lot of rumours of them having a sexual relationship. So we've got incest at play there. And now, although Cersei Lannister does not have an incestuous relationship with her son, she does with her brother. And I just feel like there's a lot of overlap there in sort of this this characterization of quite a manipulative woman trying to get her family and her relatives into power yeah, the archetypal overbearing yeah. mother it's tropey to but it has this origin in a trope that perhaps came to being because of these roman historiographers exactly and also nero i'm sure many people who are interested in the classics and are probably listening to this Nero is famous for being crazy. Yeah, and a bit stroppy. Stroppy to say the least. And mean, cruel. Mm -hmm. And that is very much the character of Joffrey, who's Cersei's son. Exactly. So they always struck me as being somewhat paralleled to ancient Roman history. And like Nero, he's a young ruler. Mm -hmm. And also like Caligula, who's also a cruel young ruler. Yeah, I think we should definitely fit in a little bit of discussion about Harry Potter. The only thing is we're not going to be able to say all there is to say about Harry Potter and classics in one episode. This is a whole other episode, but we can't not touch on it if we're talking about popular fantasy series. Because if you aren't already familiar, uh, J.K. Rowling actually did a classics degree and the references to mythology or antiquity in her books are quite explicit in the sense that she uses the names of people from mythology or history um, as the names for her characters and they quite often have parallel personality traits. So, 
um, perhaps we can talk about some of our favourites, but one that immediately comes to mind is Draco Malfoy. So Draco Malfoy is one of the antagonists of the series. He's one of Harry's enemies uh, at school. From the beginning, they do not like each other's characters. And Draco is actually the name of an Athenian ruler. Um, he was a historical ruler of Athens and he was a tyrant and his laws were infamously very violent and brutal. So he is a, a negative character from history, he has negative connotations and in that he fits with characterising Draco. And almost if you know about these people from antiquity, you can already guess a little bit about the characters before you've even spent much time with them. So another one that very much you're given hints towards who this character is going to be in the story is Remus Lupin because we have a character who is called Remus and in Roman legend Romulus and Remus were the legendary founders of Rome they were twin brothers but as babies they were suckled by a female wolf because they were abandoned by their mother and the word lupin comes from the latin meaning wolf so already if you are super into antiquity you start to wonder you're figuring it out yeah you've got those hints that remus lupin's going to become a werewolf it's yeah. there it, it's touched upon what about you is there any characters from harry potter okay to link it all up then i suppose cerebrus is fluffy in the first harry potter we have fluffy the three-headed dog who guards the trapdoor to where the stone is hidden, the philosopher's stone. And that is obviously Cerberus, mm -hmm. the three-headed dog that is the guard of something. Um, and in the same way that Cerberus is used in the Orphus and Eurydice story and in Baron Luthien, they get past him by playing music and putting him to sleep. And that's what they do in Harry Potter. And that's what they do in Harry Potter. They play a flute. Yeah. And it's not just the characters or creatures of Harry Potter, is it? The spells quite often have their roots in the Latin language. So you could basically explain what these spells do by looking up what the Latin equivalent means and, and they're very similar. So for example, three of the most famous spells from Harry Potter are probably the unforgivable curses. We've got Crucio, Imperio, Avada Kedavra. Exactly. <laughs> the torture curse, the uh, uh, imperial curse which gives you control over another person, and Avada Kedavra, which is the killing curse that Harry survives infamously. But imperial directly comes from the Latin word uh, imperium, which means power. And the word impero means I order. So already there we have the implication that um, the, this spell gives you control over another person, power over another person to, to order them to do what you want. Um, do you have any examples of spells from Harry Potter? I always liked Nox and then with that Lumos, mm -hmm. which Nox is the Latin word for night. So darkness mm -hmm. is night. It's what you say when you want to go to bed. <laughs> And lumos comes from the Latin word lumen, which means light. Yeah. So they're direct opposites of each other. It's wonderful that all of this it's is... clever writing. Yeah, it is. It's all embedded in there. And you don't need to know it to read Harry Potter, but they're nice little extra side notes. Um, yeah, you don't need to know it to read Harry Potter and to enjoy Harry Potter. But if you do know it, or you have even some basic understanding of the myths in the classical world, then you're kind of like, oh, ha. Huh. Bonus. <laughs> 
I see what you did there. And like I said... And when that happens, it's exciting. It is. I don't know how you feel, but if I notice something or I think, oh, that could be linked to that, I wonder if that's what they meant. I don't know. It just is exciting. It clicks in your brain and you're kind of like, oh, I understand that reference. Yeah, I agree. And like I said, there's so much to talk about with Harry Potter. It's... It's impossible to talk about in a podcast where we're talking more generally about fantasy fiction. So I hope that gives you listening a little bit of an idea of um, the classics in Harry Potter. But it does definitely expand beyond that. Um, But lastly, I thought, since we're talking about popular series, maybe to leave behind fantasy a little bit and talk a little bit more about a dystopian science fiction series. I always find it interesting that The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins is actually inspired loosely by the myth of the Minotaur. I'm going to be perfectly honest here and say that even as a classicist, I had never, ever thought that this was inspired by classical mythology. And until you brought it up in our little talk earlier over lunch, I was, again, like the Hadrian's Wall reference, I was like, what? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So it could be. But as soon as I pointed it out to you, you started noticing the parallels, didn't you? Yeah, we were talking about the characters' names and whatnot, Mm. and yeah, it just just seemed to fit. Suzanne Collins has cited this as being an inspiration for The Hunger Games. So for those of you who are not familiar, the story of the Minotaur um, is a long story, so I will keep to the points that are relevant to the Hunger Games, but essentially uh, the queen of Crete, the wife of King Minos, Pasiphae, gives birth to a half-man, half-bull creature, thanks to the god Poseidon. And this is the Minotaur, and the Minotaur is a vicious creature that requires human flesh to be um, sated, but they can't kill it because that would offend the gods. So instead, they trap it in a labyrinth that is built by the Greek inventor Daedalus and have to make sacrifice to it on a regular basis. Now, King Minos, who is the king of Crete, has also defeated Athens and requires Athens to donate... (laughs) 14 of its citizens every year to be sacrificed to the Minotaur and he would then release these men and women into the labyrinth to not only be eaten by the Minotaur eventually but to supposedly attempt to escape from it and have some sort of chance to survive this encounter. However, the Greek hero Theseus, who is actually the son of the king of Athens, comes to their rescue and he travels to Crete um, in order to defeat the Minotaur and, and save his people. And already you might be able to see the parallels there we have. Oh, yeah, definitely. Exactly. So we had the sacrifice of the citizens to kind of keep some semblance of peace after a war in which they've been defeated. We have in the case of the Hunger Games, we have uh, two children from each district being um, selected to compete in the Hunger Games, of which only one can survive. In this scenario, perhaps uh, Minos parallels Snow, and even slightly uh, more out there, the Minotaur parallels the citizens of Panem who consume this material on their television who screens. Who go along with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we have this sacrifice, and then we have the hero, but in this instance we have Katniss, who comes from um, the sacrificial victims to sort of begin the revolution and save her people. Obviously it's a loose inspiration but given that Suzanne Collins has acknowledged that this is directly what inspired the the setup of her novel it's so interesting to see 
how that can happen and I think it kind of lends a bit of credence to what we've been talking about and how all this stuff subtly influences people and how you can pick up on similar stories in popular fantasy and science fiction that you're reading. I don't even... Not the fact that it's a loose inspiration. It's just a very unique mm. way of interpreting the myth. Mm-hmm. It's taking that myth that people know and turning it on its head and keeping some semblance of it but making it something completely different as yeah. well and new and exciting. Yeah, it's picking out the elements that still resonate and that you can kind of work with in yeah. a more modern piece of fiction. Yeah, I found it really interesting when I first found that out as well because it wasn't, again, it wasn't a direct comparison that I made in my head. I had to be told that Suzanne Collins had said this and as soon as she, I did know that, I thought, oh yeah. But it wasn't something that, I you're not going to you're not going to sit on a first reading and go oh but actually <laughs> this reminds me of Theseus yeah. not me anyway no um, and one that we were talking about earlier was Finnick O'Dare he is a character in the second book yes. the Hunger Games and his whole deal is that he fights with a net and a, a trident yeah. type weapon and that is a very specific form of gladiatorial fighting in the Roman Empire Mm -hmm. and they were called uh, retiarius and they fought with a net kind of like a fisherman with a net and a trident and that that was a very specific set of skills Mm -hmm. and he also has this and the whole games aspect is like a big gladiatorial fight it really is it's a big arena where everyone's sitting although this they're sitting at home watching rather than physically there but they're watching they're placing bets on who's going to win yeah and that is that's what getting, the whole coliseum was all about getting pleasure of this violent entertainment yeah. which is very With, similar to and antiquity. the sacrificial tributes are kind of like the slaves from different countries that were bought and or somehow got into gladiatorial fighting trained up and Dumped put in there <laughs> fight to the death yeah it, it, it goes to show as well when people sort of read things like the hunger games or watch the films and we're horrified by what we're seeing it's like humans are perfectly capable of this and they have done this in 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 history how how people can be pitted against one another by people with nefarious motivations i think i think like it's something that you sort of it's not an innate thing it's something you're kind of pushed to do is to kind of look at each other as enemies mob mentality exactly Anyway, a depressing note to end on, but... We love it. <laughs> those were some of our thoughts, anyway, on, on mythology and ancient history and fantasy, popular fantasy and science fiction. Basically, in a nutshell, read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah, well, I think it, it's nice to point out because for those that are already interested in ancient history, it perhaps enlightens them to... Uh, fantasy and maybe trying a little bit more of that and also for those of you that already enjoy reading fantasy or science fiction you might now be interested in learning a little bit more about antiquity and mythology yeah and even i'm interested in both Mm -hmm. and you've already highlighted things that i didn't notice myself you've given me a new appreciation of middle earth oh that's my goal in life (laughs) hopefully i'm sure other people feel the same but i do have one more thing to ask of you before we finish okay Um, I'm asking everybody at the end of each episode, which I'm sure everyone listening is familiar with now, to recommend a book. Although I'm sure anyone listening has come away with quite a few recommendations already. I want you to pick one. I would say The Silmarillion Silmarillion. by J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay. Because it has elements of Lord of the Rings in it. So if you're already a fan, it's a good way to read more into the history of the world. And you... 
for me, you just get to see how much of a genius Tolkien is and what he's managed to create out of his own head. It's fantastic. Okay. A little bit of Middle Earth mythology. Exactly. I like it. I would highly recommend it. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, if you are interested in seeing more of Jill, you can check her out on YouTube or on Twitter at the Book Nook. Um, she will be tagged in our Twitter posts so you can find her easily that way. And I'm so grateful that she was able to join me today. I was thank happy you so to be much. invited. You can also find me on Twitter at That's Ancient History if you would like to make any requests for future episodes of the podcast. And I do hope you have enjoyed listening. Until next time.